0: Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate?
1: Sure. So I grew up in Ottawa and Toronto in the 70s and 80s. And certainly Ottawa was a winter city. Uh, So we didn't have like, it's funny because I look back on it and we didn't have a huge amount of like produce (laughs) at all times. It's cold. Ottawa in Canada Uh, so you know the winter our vegetables were pretty pathetic and but my mother would always try as hard as she could at the same time though both cities uh, were pretty international cities Uh, Toronto is the capital of Canada super cosmopolitan and uh, sorry Ottawa is the capital of Canada Toronto is the capital of Ontario but uh, and because Ottawa was the capital it's filled with diplomats so we had all different kinds of restaurants that we constantly were sort of like going to my dad was in government. We were meeting other families. And so I had this sort of really varied variety of like cuisines. And I have this memory of going to the supermarkets when I was younger and particularly in Toronto, which again is a much more cosmopolitan city uh, filled with all different, you know, ethnicities and nationalities uh, where like, the, it's pretty exciting if I look back on it now, but, you know, the grocery store was filled with products from all over the world. And so mm-hmm. if you were an adventurous cook, which my mother sometimes was, she wasn't always, uh, you know, we'd have really random fun ingredients in our kitchen cupboard. So I, I, I think we ate like all over the map, but also, you know, it was a family of five kids. So we ate a lot of pasta and pasta salads. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> the food of the um, 80s.
0: <laughs> and so what got you into food actually?
1: Um, well, I think there was a variety of things that got me into it. my, I am a, the youngest of five kids and uh, there's about a five year difference between me and my, the, the next sibling who's closest in age to me, but all my, all those other siblings are about two years apart. So my brother's 12 years older uh, and then there's three sisters in between. This is a whole family history. Uh, but by the time I became a teenager, <laughs> my mother had then been cooking for about, right. you know, 25 years for her family and Kudos to her. She just sort of was like, "I'm not doing it anymore." (laughs) I swear, she looked at me and she was like, "You are. You look pretty capable. You seem to know your way around the kitchen. If you want to have dinner, figure it out yourself." Um, I mean, it wasn't quite that blunt, but uh, Mm -hmm. you know, she she really (laughs) she didn't have to cook for a family of seven anymore every single night. It was just sort of like me and her and my dad, and I think she was kind of done with it, which I think yeah. we all understand now, having cooked through the pandemic, how like, <laughs> awesome it is to cook every night. Um, and uh, I liked it. I was like, oh, this is fun. I get to figure out what I want to eat, and you know, I get to play around, and you know, I loved uh, cooking magazines, and so I would like, cook recipes from them. I'm sure they were all terrible. My parents were certainly nice enough to suffer through some awful meals um but I liked it I liked the challenge of it I liked reading the recipe and figuring things out and you know seeing it come to life and it was one of the you know I was always one of well I was a kid that was always so disappointed that I could never like get what was in my imagination to come true on like a piece of paper uh or you know I'd write a story and be like oh I imagined it so different <laughs> or I'd paint a picture and I'm like I'm a terrible artist but in my head I'm an amazing artist uh And then, but something with like a recipe, you know, you get the ingredients together, you sort of have this idea of what it's going to turn out like, and it turns out like that. And so that was so just satisfying to me. And I liked it. And it was always sort of my backup plan of what I would do if, uh, you know, I couldn't figure anything else out. And as it turned out, when I was in my early 20s, I really couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, I've always liked to cook. So, you know, maybe I can just get that as a skill. If I can hold on to that as a skill, I can go anywhere in the world and I can travel and it'll just, you know, it'll at least sort of be a lifeline for a moment while I figure out what I want to do. And the reality is it's, it's what I wanted to do. I just didn't know it at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. And you decided to go to the Natural Gourmet Institute?
1: Yeah, I had been, I'd been actually living in Hong Kong right after uh, university and i wanted more than anything to keep traveling. And so I was like, well, I have to figure out how to, you know, get this, this skill. And uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a while and and hated it. And I was starting to look at cooking schools. And at the time I was a pretty hardcore vegetarian. I think I just left my vegan stage. Um, and I, there was no way I was going to a, a real cooking school. One of the reasons I don't eat, uh, I mean, I, I eat a little bit of meat now and fish, but particularly at the time, why I didn't, um, is I really, um, bones really freak me out. And so even as a kid, I didn't like bones in my food. And and so the idea that I was going to have to learn how to butcher something was really, really traumatizing. And fortunately, the natural gourmet, uh, you really didn't have to learn how to do that. They did actually have meat classes at the time. And I think there was a a chicken butchering class and a a fish class, uh, but you were also allowed to miss two days. (laughs) <laughs> and so those were the two days I missed uh but it was a great program actually and I uh, I look back on it now and you know it, it's funny because so much of you know the time it was like people didn't think it was a real school and they were like oh mm-hmm. you know it's just a school with funny ingredients and all those funny ingredients and all the sort of like recipes that we were using them and all the like courses that we were getting taught are actually now considered really cool and trendy and it's so amazing how that's changed.
0: But what um you said you had a vegan phase what what made you stop eating meat?
1: Well, I had stopped eating meat when I was 15 uh, because really all my friends were. I mean, it was just uh-huh. it was three 2 years ago. And becoming a vegetarian was like, you know, like super rebellious at the time. It's very different now um, where it's, you know, almost mainstream. Uh, but then really like it was super rebellious and all my friends were rebellion against their parents. And I was like, oh, that seems like a good idea. I'll do that too. And, you know, it certainly annoyed my parents enough. They were like, you're not going to have enough to eat. And, you know, what's going to happen to you? But the reality is, is <laughs> it actually, my diet didn't change I had never eaten that much meat anyways to begin with, and I didn't really like it. Um, so when we started sort of having meals after I made this grand decision that I was a vegetarian, as it turned out, there, <laughs> like you know, I was just eating the exact same thing I was beforehand. I just hadn't labeled myself as a vegetarian. Um, and so it, it, it's not like it was this grand change in my life. And then when I moved to Hong Kong um, – And I probably moving maybe a little bit beforehand, I just sort of had become, I think, vegan. I think a lot of my friends in college were vegan, so it was easier. And then actually, there's not a lot of, I don't know now, but certainly at the time when I was living there, there wasn't a lot of dairy in the food I was eating in Hong Kong. Uh, And so it just, I was all of a sudden, like, again, happenstance, I was a vegan.
0: Right, right, right. And, and so you've, since your time at the Natural Gourmet Institute, you worked at so many vegetarian restaurants in New York. How have you kind of seen vegetarianism shift in this time like as a cuisine?
1: Well, I, I think you actually, you answered your own question. You called right. it a cuisine. <laughs> yeah.
0: And
1: so I don't think it had ever been considered really a cuisine beforehand. Uh, You know, it was so disregarded and considered a a second-class cuisine, uh, I think, by most uh, foodies and food writers and uh, certainly the mainstream press. And nowadays, well, I'm not sure it's held at the top level. It's certainly in the playing field. We're seeing getting a lot more coverage. We're seeing uh, vegetarian chefs being treated a lot more seriously. And what we're seeing, which I think... um, is pretty fascinating and has been a huge shift, Is and it's slow. We're, we're not where I'd like to see us at yet, but we're actually considering vegetarian chefs who started off in the vegetarian world as serious chefs versus right. what happened then for numerous years, which was that you'd have a mainstream chef or an omnivore chef all of a sudden be like, oh, well, now I'm going to cook vegetables or I'm going to become a vegetarian for a while, and they got all the press. And it was like, right. you know, you'd be a vegetarian chef next to them and you'd be like, hello, <laughs> hello, I've been doing this for a really long time too. Uh, and, you know, you were just totally disregarded because of your background and, right. you know, who who you did or didn't know. And I think that's a huge, huge shift and an important one.
0: Right, right. And, I mean, when you opened Dirt Candy, for this reason, it was considered extremely radical. And, you know, how how have you changed your approach to cooking being as you're kind of on your own wavelength, like you have to challenge yourself, it seems, because, you know, you're kind of like in a league of your own in terms of what you're doing, you know, so how has, has your approach changed?
1: Um, well, one, I'm a much more confident chef than I was. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I think one of the things that will I'll always find sad and I'll find this sad for the rest of my career is, I'll never know actually what it was like to be a, or be a customer at Little Dirt Candy when it opened and what my food was like then. And, you know, I think it's changed so much now in in, in this restaurant um, because I have so much less to prove, but I'll also never get to really sit down and eat my, my food here as an outside observer. Uh, And maybe I would hate it. Who knows? I'm pretty picky, Uh, (laughs) but uh, you know, I felt like I had so much to prove at the beginning and, you know, I think my dishes were so much more complicated and, uh, than they had to be, but I also think they, it was a time of cooking where it was a lot more like that. Um, right. And now I look at the food I'm serving now, and you know it's it's a lot less pretentious and complicated. And I think I'd always wanted to serve fun food, and I, I think sort of my um, my lack my my sort of what I didn't know I was covering up when sort of with like microgreens, <laughs> like I was like, oh well, <laughs> you know, like all the like fussy stuff, and now. I am a better chef than I was since I opened Little Dirt Candy. It's, it's 10 years later. I don't have as much to prove. Uh, and, and so I can let the vegetables really speak for themselves a lot more. Uh, right. And I, I think that I also, um, I, I'm still only competing against myself, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it still allows me to kind of do whatever I want to do, because there are no rules right. for this kind of cuisine still, which is great. Right. <laughs>
0: Well, as you noted, you know, vegetable forward dining kind of became a thing um, for which mostly men have been given credit Um, when, you know, I go through my cookbooks, you know, my vegetarian cookbooks, like from the 70s through now. And it's mostly women who have always been doing vegetarian food and who have always been pushing um, the cuisine forward, (laughs) who made it a cuisine, you know. And so um, and you've been so outspoken about this. And so I wanted to kind of ask, have you seen or would you like to see food media change its approach to how it talks about vegetarian cooking? And, and how, have you, how have you understood um, how gender kind of manifests in, in, this, in this specific approach to how people talk about vegetarian cuisine?
1: Well, I think, you know, it goes back a little bit to my answer about, you know, the, the mainstream chefs, right. uh, which is really just a coded word for male chefs, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, getting a lot of attention for entering this field and, and I think what happens is they become considered the expert uh, much faster than the people who've actually been doing it you know right. they come with all the credentials like "Ooh, this is my press these are my awards these are my restaurants versus people who've spent their entire life doing this and probably actually are the experts in it they don't come with all the whistles and bells <laughs> they just come with knowledge and you know fanfare seems to have a lot more weight than actual in-depth knowledge about a subject, I think, right. in the food media. And I, I'd like to see that change. I'm, I'm not sure uh, we are there yet. It would, it would be very nice if, and I and I've thought this for a while in a lot of uh, food coverage, uh, if if we could start talking about the history of the food mm-hmm. uh, and how we got to covering this particular aspect of it. Because I think once you go back through the history, Exactly what you see on your cookbook shelves if we're talking just about vegetarian food. Oh wow, there's so many women who like were writing these cookbooks and who were at the forefront of this movement. Um, and then you can't deny that existence. Mm-hmm. So we have to start putting it has to become much more sort of holistic when we report on right. food and not just this narrow idea of, ooh, what's cool. Mm-hmm
0: yeah and I mean, I think that this is so prevalent in the like veggie burger discourse now, too, where you know because people have obsessed so much over like impossible burgers and beyond burgers, then when you did Lekka burger, it seemed kind of you know to peop to people who don't like eat vegetarian food most of the time, they were like huh it was it's kind of an anachronism, and thus you had that New Yorker review where you know the lekka burger was compared solely to brooks headley's veggie burger at superiority burger and so like i don't um i know you had a very strong response to that review and you know i've had a very i've always been like well you know superiority burger was huge and got its press because of brooks headley's you know prestige that he got in the same way that you just said it's like if, if you come with the accolades and those bells and whistles then people will will you know think that your veggie burger is more worthwhile than the veggie burger by someone who has actually been like I mean, not that he hasn't. And like, it's very difficult because I love superiority burger (laughs) and like, you know, Brooks is great. But at the same time, it's like, why is this the only, you know, standard, um, against which we can talk about any other veggie burger in the, in the way that like, you know, fine dining, um, omnivorous chefs could make a burger and, you know, it would still just be made of, of meat, you know, (laughs) it wouldn't be that interesting. Um, but yeah, so I don't know how have how is the 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 perception of Lecca burger, like how how have you felt about the press there that you've gotten?
1: Um yeah, I mean it's it's been a real up and down uh, right. roller coaster. So but I want to be very clear about this. I have nothing against Superiority Burger. I think of what course Brooks yeah. <laughs> is great. And and so my, my issue is always about the press surrounding it and not actually Brooks himself, who I am friends with. He's he's in my old restaurant. Uh, We talked about that for months. So, you know, I sat down with him and worked through his budget a little. Like, just absolutely no issues with him whatsoever. And I'm so glad he pushed the conversation, uh, Veggie Burgers, forward and what they could be. He has this sort of really good example of what one is. I have a very different example of what it is. Um, And the reality is when I opened... Dirt or LECA, Dirt Candy. When I opened Lekka Burger, <laughs> I never imagined that my competition was actually Brooks. Brooks has this like right. really like tiny, fun artisanal um, I, burger shop, and I yeah. even that he says you know burgers aren't really necessarily the whole focus there. Um, but it's like it, it it wasn't it's not meant to be scaled up. <laughs> and yeah. for us, when we opened Lekka Burger, honestly, our competition is Shake Shack. I mean that's what right. we want to be, and and so that's who I want to be compared to. I want to be compared right. to the burger at Shake Shack, which actually the vegetarian burger is like all around the country. Like right. that, that's our competition, not Brooks' really delicious artisanal burger. And even if right. I was being compared to that burger, um, then you know the, the the New York Review and. Uh, really sort of took it out of the context of the burger in the end. Right. And they are like, well, it's not about the burger. You know, we really like this sandwich instead. And that's what people should be doing. And that really discounts a female chef coming into the space saying, hey, you know what? I want to grow really big. This is my chance to have a franchise or not a franchise, mm-hmm. but to have lots of different locations. And then sort of being told, no, you can't do that because you're not, or I, I mean, obviously the New Yorker thought that I couldn't do that because you're not doing exactly what this person is doing and this is what right. you know all people should be doing and I just keep thinking <laughs> but there's so much room out there yeah for all of us yeah no it was and, and really it
0: started, dis- yeah no no I'm sorry yeah no
1: it, no <laughs> the, it felt like you know there was no way to compete even though I'm not trying to compete with superiority <laughs> burger because the, the, only, the only person who can do that is Brooks.
0: yeah yeah No, it was very interesting because I think it spoke to how, how little imagination people have when they are approaching vegetarian food, you know, and, and, and that's really depressing to me, of course, (laughs) you know, as a person writing about vegetarian and vegan food, that, you know, most of the when people who don't think about these things all the time approach it, they come at it with such a narrow perspective which does such a disservice, you know, to to how we should be able to discuss, you know, the, this wide and varied world of veggie burgers, um, which is like, I mean, that's what the cool thing about the veggie burger is, is that it can be literally anything. But yeah, it's very disheartening.
1: <laughs> and on top of that, every like, I cannot tell you, uh, because now I'm in the veggie burger world, like, yeah, how many articles every day are written about veggie burgers, and you know, are they the next big thing? Or you know, what Beyond Burger is doing this week, or Impossible Burger, or, you know, Nestle's next burger? Like, this is huge. <laughs> like, we're on the cusp of some, and whether it not it, or not it works, like, we're on a cusp of some weird like veggie burger mock meat revolution. I mean, it's a huge, right. huge conversation that's happening. Like, that never would have happened, like you know, ten years ago.
0: Right. Right. And, and to see it not taken as seriously as it perhaps should be is, is just yeah annoying <laughs> frankly um, I didn't but
1: bre so many different kinds
0: yes yes exactly and yeah I mean but at dirt candy too in the pandemic you've sort of also kind of embraced the sandwich as as a <laughs> as a tool which is interesting you know because you now you've had this experience doing the veggie burger and that kind of approach like did that? Um, did working on Lekka Burger influence how you approached um, kind of pivoting Dirt Candy during the pandemic?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, a little bit of, because of Lekka Burger. You know, I had to simplify my process so much. The you know the Burger, it's like ten steps or less to get a burger out. Right. Uh, whereas you know before a dirt candy it was like well you know we're at like you know 300 steps for this one dish but that, that seems like enough we're good to go <laughs> uh, so really this idea of you know focusing on what a sandwich is and how best like how easy it is to make it and what a, an actual sandwich means and we talk about this a lot in Brooklyn but like you know what's the best bread for this what's going to happen to the filling is it going to soak into it what's the textural contrast between the bread and do you want the bread soft bread crunchy chewy like and all that sort of went into the burger of LACA. So I think I had uh, started opening up my brain to that way of thinking. But also, right. I didn't have a choice that was candy. LACA was a choice. Right. Uh, there was <laughs> nothing else I could do. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this restaurant. We're reopening in the middle of the pandemic because I, again, have no choice. I have to reopen or I'm going to close. And clearly, my fine dining restaurant isn't going to function like it's just right. not going to work. I can't make that food. I'm trying to keep as few staff members as possible uh, on board, a to keep my payroll low. But also, I the idea of having to let anybody else go again was just too much for me. So you know, I have this core group of staff, uh, which if I'm slow or busy, I can I can take care of. I, I didn't want to play the game of. Oh, well, I think I'm going to be busy on like Friday nights during the summer, so I'll hire some extra people. But come October, I'm going to fire everybody again. It just didn't seem fair. Right. Um, and then, so I have to do, I have to make food that my staff can handle, but I also have to make food that like, people want to eat. And, right. you know, my customers are gone. <laughs> my customers were, I didn't even understand how many, but probably were 75% tourists. Wow. And then the rest. Yeah. Like huge. Like I never understood, like, you know, I always would pay lip service to the words like, Oh, I was like a tourist destination, but, or, but I'm, I really, really was. And yeah. the other, you know, part of my customers were probably people who also left the city because they had a lot of money and, you mm-hmm. know, we we were treated as a, you know, a once in a while restaurant, a, a fancy restaurant. Maybe you come to us once or twice a year, which was fine. I, I didn't have to be a neighborhood restaurant. But the restaurants right now that are surviving and that are doing well are neighborhood <laughs> restaurants. They're really catering to their neighborhood, and you know it's been very humbling uh, for me to realize that oh, that's not something I did. Um, and I'm not sure it was necessarily the worst thing not to have done that, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, in the long term, it wasn't great. But I also right. wasn't thinking down the road to a pandemic when I put my business model. <laughs> note to sell, right. always consider a pandemic down the road um and so we're trying to you know we've we've struggled with trying to figure out you know what do people want to eat and, and how do they want to eat it and what do they want for me because you know now what we get is a lot of people who are coming in are like oh I've always wanted to come to Dirt Candy oh you only serve sandwiches <laughs> we're like yeah <laughs> it's, that is all we're serving right now and and you know so trying to really and we are sort of revamping ourselves all the time to figure out how we can best serve our community and our customers and sandwiches happen to be an easy, not an easy one, but uh, universally loved.
0: Right. Do you think you'll keep them on the menu when, when things return to non pandemic
1: (laughs) times? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, we used to have a really good brunch and I loved it and we had some sandwiches and we were a much more casual restaurant then, but brunch was just, impossible for us. I I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm such a bad restaurateur at brunch, but I could, (laughs) so hard to find line cooks. And, you know, we could never, it's hard to, um, you know, I I don't know, we had like a, a deal for like, you know, you get a cocktail and a pastry and a sandwich and a cup of coffee all for $30. And it was our party brunch. And, you know, I think that's a really good deal. But around the corner, there's like 10 places that are doing bottomless Mm-hmm. brunches and I'm like well, I just can't pay my rent with that like yeah. and I, I can't pay my staff and um, so I'm not sure I can live on sandwiches right. <laughs> like we can't yeah. run on it but, you know maybe I don't honestly I have no idea what we're going to be at the end of this
0: right right no I mean that's terrifying yeah <laughs> I mean yeah I mean for you what is what uh, what would a good response have been by the government to you know keeping restaurants Open, but also keeping people safe during this.
1: Um. Well, so many, so many different ways. <laughs> no. uh, I, so to take a step back, I don't fault them right. for the response they had. Within like a right. week of us all sitting down, basically they had a, a care plan in place. You know, mm-hmm. we did the PPP was there, and, and there were st- mm-hmm. stimulus checks and. Uh, You know the extra six hundred dollars a week for employees, uh, which was great. I mean, and they came up with that for basically a dysfunctional government. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they really came up with that really fast. And you know, once the PPP was sort of rejiggered, it really actually did work for for most people who were able to take it or who had decided to take it. However it's not enough. And that's where we're at. This real problem is they have sort of, it was short sighted and now we need to really be thinking long sighted. And, you know, even within the PPP, which one of the reasons it it didn't work is, you know, you were basically paying people to go to work Mm -hmm. and I still think the government should have paid people not to go to work, all people like that. I shouldn't have to have made the choice to open my restaurant so that I could survive as opposed to, you know, well, I'm going to keep my restaurant closed. I'm going to keep all my employees on unemployment with the extra uh, federal aid, and then I can keep everybody safe. <laughs> that that yeah. would have been a choice, and that's something that I really think the federal government should have thought more of uh, doing, but they didn't. Right. So right. now we're here, right. and we're still stuck without really uh, a follow up plan. You know, and right. now it's dire, and, and this right. is where I think they have really, really failed us. The cities failed us, the states failed us, and the federal government has failed us. We are not getting the aid we need to keep our doors open or keep our doors closed. Right. Either or right. they're putting us in this really uncomfortable position where we're all having to make not even smart decisions. We're just making like, you know, decisions. And it's like everything's like right. a band aid. Uh and we're not going to (laughs) survive without another AIDS package now, without them passing the restaurant act uh, or something akin to it. The restaurant act just happens to have the most movement behind it. uh, You know, I'm not, I won't stay open. (laughs) That's the reality. Come end of January. If if I don't know uh, that there's a, a lifeline along on the way, then there's just no point anymore.
0: Right. Right. That's, so scary <laughs> that's so, so scary, scary and so horrifying
1: yeah because it's not just me you know you're, we're at, we're right. looking at every restaurant i mean not everyone but the bulk of them facing the same issues and mm-hmm. it, it's two parts one okay so if we don't know we have if we knew them we had the money coming and it was coming at the end of january then everybody could breathe a sigh of relief it's coming right so we can hold on to them but the mental toll of sort of yeah. being kept in limbo Constantly, it's too much, and then we're just sort of throwing away good money after bad money. And then the reality is, is at some point, you know, you have to make the choice. I, I have to close. I'm not making enough money. You know, I've gone from making ten 000 to twelve thousand dollars a night to two to three on a good night. We right. make three on a bad night. Right. I can also make six hundred dollars. Like mm. we're we're not doing well here, and. uh You know, if I close, then I close. (laughs) The city loses me, but the city also loses the jobs that I have. And yes, I only have six right now, but in six months, maybe I actually could have 20 jobs or, you know, 30 jobs. Maybe I could get back up to my pre-pandemic levels come summer once the vaccine is sort of... Um, have been rolled out and you know they lose the taxes I put into the city and they lose my payroll taxes there's a huge huge amount of sort of like economic destruction that's going to happen if they don't start sort of having this long-term thinking
0: right right and had I mean I don't think at this point it has it it makes that much of a difference but you've been one of the few restaurateurs who's been super outspoken about having a no tipping policy Um, does that make a difference do you think in terms of how you've weathered the pandemic or how you could survive um i know in the beginning places that had um places people that i was talking to who had tipping a no tipping policy they were they were really weathering the beginning a lot better but that kind of wears out after a while <laughs> i guess
1: i think actually yeah, I mean, I think actually it's been a, a saving grace not having uh, tipping for a number of reasons. One, it actually helped us with our uh, the amount of money we got from the government originally because right. I didn't have my payroll was higher. And, and so it's allowed me to sort of sustain myself a little bit longer. Uh, but I think everybody who has tipping right now is, is seeing that they have nights where they're only making a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. But, you know, they still have to staff up and you still have yeah. to have your staff here certain number of hours and so people are going home with not a lot of money these days they might have gone home at the beginning you know in the summer when Mm -hmm. and we didn't have a curfew and there was a lot more money sort of flowing but I I, from also what I've read and and talked to other people um you know the money isn't flowing as quickly as it used to and there's a lot a lot of bad nights I walk home about 40 blocks every night from dirt candy and Tuesdays Wednesdays and Thursdays curfew or no curfew as soon as it got cold places are done like and I walk by yeah. I walk through the East Village through Union Square like there is nobody in restaurants except you know you're like three or four you know front of house workers who are standing there waiting <laughs> to see right. maybe possibly if somebody will come in so they're suffering they're suffering yeah. a lot.
0: No, it's, it's absolutely horrifying, and I hope that something happens between now and the end of January. Um, but um, to completely change <laughs> gears, you know, um, but I guess not. No, For you, is cooking a political act?
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think running my restaurant is a political act, for sure. I think yeah. food is so incredibly political. Where it comes from, who cooks it, who grows it, you know, Who's eating it? All of that. And, you know, sort of when I start to think about the global supply chain, it's so enormous and it's so overwhelming how like basically every, every plate has become exceptionally political. Um, But I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. And, you know, I'm just starting to sort of uh, think this through. And, you know, for years I've said, we have to raise prices. We have to raise prices. And, you know, I think about, you know, how much I pay for my food and, you know, how, how much Sometimes I pay so little for food, I'm like, this is insane. And sometimes I pay so much for food. I'm like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. But like when I'm paying so little for food, I'm like, I don't understand how, how that driver who's dropping it off got paid. How the you know, how the company afforded the boxes. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. How little they're paying the like people who shipped it or the people who grew it, or how much are the seeds? Like, honestly, when you start to go back through that. It's like my brain doesn't know how to process all of it. And it's something that I know you've written a lot about and probably know a lot more about it than, than me. Um, but uh, as I start thinking through it, I'm like, yes, of course, <laughs> what we eat and who eats it and how we serve it and, and why we serve it is insanely political. And on the right. flip side of that, um, I think that food is actually politics. And this is something that's sort of really come up over the course of the pandemic mm-hmm. one of the reasons that the irc has been really successful or not really successful but it's sort of like come together and we've seen a little bit of movement is because of how many actual restaurant workers there are and how mm-hmm. many independent restaurants there are there are 16 million or there were that number is not as high as it used to be but there are 16 million uh restaurant workers in the United States. That makes us the second biggest employer behind the government. That's insane Mm -hmm. to me. And then the fact that there's like 500,000 independent restaurants, none of us knew these numbers beforehand and we were so naive. But when we started Mm -hmm. putting it all together and we realized how big our voice could be, I think, I mean, certainly for a lot of us, we're like, oh, we've missed so many opportunities. Uh, (laughs) But now you know, we actually can do so much with our voices. And and it's, it's one of the few good things that maybe come out of the pandemic is realizing how much power we could have.
0: Right. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited to see if that turns into something powerful and, and real and effective in the future. Um, well, thank you so much for, for coming on to chat. I know you're insanely busy, Um I've been going back to your cookbook lately in my research and it's, it's still so fun and original and um, I, yeah, just love it, obviously. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and, um, you know, good luck. Can't wait to follow along with, with what happens.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for having me. This was great.
0: Thank you.